Welcome to the March 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. This month's episode is focused on ways to pursue your family history online. First, we're going to kick off this episode with a quick look at the events that impact your family history in This Month in Family History with the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook. Then we'll meet up with Rich Venezia, who will share strategies for finding and using online naturalization records. In the DNA Deconstructed segment, Shannon Combs-Bennett will be here to help you navigate GEDmatch Genesis. Then Donna Moody is going to be here to share one of her favorite websites for finding Irish records online. In our Stories from the Stacks segment, we will visit with the Clayton Library Center for Genealogical Research, and we will wrap things up with a resource that's going to help you publish a family history book in just three days. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up is This Month in Family History. This month in 1933, just eight days after his inauguration, in which he famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt took to the airwaves in the first of his fireside chats. In the 13-minute and 42-second address, Roosevelt explained the basics of the banking crisis two weeks prior and outlined what his administration was doing to prevent the crisis from getting worse. Roosevelt gave 30 fireside chats over the next 11 years, with topics ranging from war updates to droughts to party primaries. He believed the addresses would allow him to connect directly to the people, and millions of Americans tuned in to listen. Indeed, the fireside chats served as a source of comfort and information, particularly during the dark days of the Great Depression and World War II. You can listen to many of FDR's radio addresses, including the fireside chats, on the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum's website, To listen to other historical radio programs your ancestors may have listened to, from sci-fi serials to on-the-ground war reporting, go to oldradioprograms.us. In our feature segment today, we're going to look at naturalization records, and here to help you find them for your ancestors is Rich Venezia. He's the founder of Rich Roots Genealogy. Hey, welcome back to the show, Rich. It's great to have you back. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Lisa. I'm glad to be here. Well, naturalization records, you know, as you know, are such a rich source of information. So I'd love to have you start us off and tell us kind of in a nutshell, what was the naturalization process? And even more importantly, what records did it generate? Okay. So the process for naturalization starts way back right after the country was founded in the 1790s. And the type, the process has always been relatively the same since about 1795. Generally, what people had to do was after they'd been here for two years, they would declare their intention with what's known as a declaration of intent um, to basically say, you know, I'm stating before the court that I intend to become a U.S. citizen. And then after another three years, they could then petition for naturalization. So, Almost since the founding of the country, it has been a five-year process. For the most part, you'll find two kind of big pieces of the naturalization record. There's the, the Declaration of Intention and the Petition for Naturalization. Now, as with everything, there's a lot of exceptions to the rules. So throughout history, things have been added to the law to state that certain individuals didn't need to declare intent. So after the Civil War, for instance, 
honorably discharged soldiers um, from the army. And then 30 years later, they added Navy and Marine Corps, didn't have to declare intent. They could just petition for naturalization. They did the same thing for soldiers in World War I. Starting in the 1920s, women who were married to U.S. citizen men didn't need to declare intent. They could just petition. And same with alien men married to U.S. citizen women starting in the 1930s. And in the 1950s, they made the Declaration of Intention requirement voluntary altogether. So it just kind of depends upon what time frame in which you're looking. But there's usually like the most of the time frame. And for most individuals, you're going to find at least those two pieces of the record, the Declaration of Intention and that petition for naturalization. Exactly. Now, tell us what level of jurisdiction are we talking about? Are we talking about in the, the town, the county, or at the federal level? That is a great question. And it changes. It looks different whether you're talking about pre-1906 or post-1906. So the federal government didn't standardize and didn't federalize naturalization until 1906. So starting in September 1906, things look a lot different than they did before September of 1906. So before that time frame, so we're talking the 1790 to mid-1906 time frame, naturalizations could occur in any court of record. Now, this was generally almost always a county court. So people are going to, you know, possibly the court of common pleas. They could be going to a police court, to a municipal court, to a superior court, um, to any sort of county court. And some of the bigger cities might have had a bunch of courts that were all naturalizing individuals at the same time. Philadelphia, for instance, before 1906, had 11 different courts that held jurisdiction over naturalization. But then starting in 1906, the federal government wanted to take over and wanted to really uh, push individuals to naturalizing in federal courts that held a broader jurisdiction, you know, over a larger area of the state. So we see a lot less courts with the ability to naturalize in 1906. Um, And so... A lot of individuals are going to be found in federal court records after 1906, but a lot of county courts do still hold jurisdiction, at least for several decades after that switch. So the the, the best way really to figure out which court held jurisdiction at any given time is by getting in touch with, you know, the local genealogical society, county historical society, or county archives, because they'll be able to tell you, oh, you know, what's the time frame that you're looking for? Okay, in that time frame, here are the the courts that would have held jurisdiction, as opposed to in a different time frame, where different courts may have held jurisdiction. That's a great idea. And you know, you can go online to a site like US Gen Web, and look at the county, right? They oftentimes will already have that right there on the site. Or the Family Search Wiki, I imagine, would be a great place to very quickly figure out Absolutely, any particular yeah. jurisdiction. I know with my great-grandparents who naturalized, they lived in California. They applied at the county level. In fact, my great-grandfather applied first in Illinois years earlier, right before, right when he arrived. And then 10, 20 years later out in California. But even then, I did write in. Uh, to the federal level to see if there were rec- records, and there were. So mm-hmm. somebody who maybe applied at the county level possibly could still have records on file. Or my question to you, would the county court have sent those records on to the federal level? 
Indeed. So uh, as I mentioned, it was a two-part process. Mm -hmm. So if an individual was petitioning for naturalization, especially if it were a different jurisdiction than in which he'd declared his intention to naturalize, the county would have had to provide that second court with a copy of that declaration. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, the, the federal court in, in your instance in California would have likely written to the, the county court unless the, the petitioner had a copy of his declaration, which which he may have also had. Uh -huh. um, but they would have checked in with that first court to say, yes, you know, are, are the, the laws that they had to declare intent, did that actually happen when they said it did? And please provide us a copy so that we can then include it in the final naturalization record kind of package. Awesome. Well, and you're just making such a great point how important it is to understand the context of yeah, where our absolutely. ancestors were and what they were doing. Now, our theme for this episode is about online records. So get us excited. What can we sure. find online? Okay. And I want to, if I can, I want to make a plug. There's a great book called Guide to Naturalization Records of the United States by Christina Schaefer. And that is a really excellent resource into, um, you know, which county courts were naturalizing. And she goes county by county throughout the whole United States. So it's a really great resource. But what's also really excellent about it is that a lot of what she mentions in that book are family history library microfilms, mm -hmm. which have now, as we know, for the most part, been digitized on family search. So there are a lot of records that are available online, certainly not all records, by no means, as we know with everything in genealogy, not everything is online, but there are a lot of records available. You want to check sites like Family Search. You want to check sites like Ancestry. Um, Ancestry has a lot more of those federal records because those are National Archives records, and then they've been microfilmed, and then Ancestry has digitized you know, some of those microfilms or some of the physical records that are in the regional branches of the National Archives. And then Family Search has some of those same records, but they are also um, much more full of these kind of county common police courts or other things like that. So a lot of pre-1906 records you may also find on Family Search. Most of these are not, you know, OCR indexed or keyword searchable. So you're going to have to do some browsing. You're going to have to see, you know, is there an index? Browse through the index, find the entry you want, and then cross-reference with the other records. You know, as usual with some of the Family Search records, you might need to visit a family search affiliate library or a family history center in order to view them. But also don't forget too, that many counties are now taking it upon themselves to publish their own uh, either indexes to naturalization records, or in a lot of cases, actually digitizing the records themselves because they're so oft requested. Mm -hmm. So for instance, here in Western PA, of course, not in my county, um, but in a couple of the <laughs> counties around me, you can actually go to the in, in Pennsylvania, the office of the prothonotary is the one who usually holds naturalization records. In a lot of other states, it's the office of the county clerk. And they've gone ahead and digitized sort of all or most of their naturalization records, sometimes as recently, you know, as the 1960s, 70s and 80s. So you can just go to their website, oftentimes search for free and download images of those. So especially if you're not finding what you're looking for on Ancestry or on Family Search, check out the, the website of the office of the local county clerk of the county that you're interested in to see if maybe they have anything available online. Or if they don't, they may have an order form that you can then order to have them do a search manually. Yep. You know what you're saying? I'm sure people might be listening and thinking, oh, I'm sure my county won't have them. But you know, I can attest to this because I remember going and making the trip to the county courthouse in the uh, little county in California, 
who's got the records. And it was just a few years later, they genealogical society had put them all online because they did have so yeah. many requests. So that is not unheard of. And it's a great reason to use your Google searching strategies to absolutely track down. Yeah, that. Absolutely. And you made another great point that I don't want people to miss. And that is, well, not everything's online. Tons of stuff is online, but not everything online is indexed or keyword searchable. Now, indeed, yeah, I, we just heard you say that, but I know sometimes that goes over people's heads and they and they don't really digest it. That means we got to go to the, the card catalog. We've got to go to the collection, and we have to start doing it the old-fashioned way, kind of absolutely, browsing, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's just like, you know, you were, it's just like as if you were looking at a microfilm, yes. but now you have the indexes available to you digitally. So even if you can't just go into the database and type in your ancestor's name, you know, the index may be digitized. So you can go to the index, look at, mm-hmm. you know, look at the thumbnails, go straight to the M's if you're looking for a surname that starts with an M and then, you know, scroll through those until you find your person of interest. Then you'll get, all right, it's volume 17, page 487. And then you can go back to the card catalog and see, oh, brilliant, volume 14 is here. So click on volume 14, go to page 487. So it's a little bit more work, but, you know, not not a huge amount. It's certainly not an insurmountable um feet to, to be able to, to go and take a look at these records. Exactly. We just tap into our, our uh, microfilm skills. <laughs> Think of Indeed, that yeah. when we're looking at our online um, records as well. Well, this is terrific. Wow. You packed a lot of great information that I think will give people some uh, context and some framework to work within to try to find these types of records. They really are such uh, a great resource. I know for my great grandfather, there was the name of his village. Everything else had kind of just said Germany or, you know, yeah. the, the district, but here was the name of the village. And well, you can't yeah. get better than that. Yeah. Can I make a quick, just a quick note on that too, yes. is that if, um, depending upon the time frame of interest that you're looking for, again, the, the records are going to look a little different. So before 1906, a lot of naturalization records, because there was no standardized form, are oftentimes just going to give a country of origin. They may not tell you even the age of the individual. They may not tell you an exact place or the ship that they arrived on. But after 1906, after September 1906, they are chock full of information. But don't lose hope if you're pre-19, if you're looking for somebody pre-1906, because since each court kept different records and asked for different information, you might get lucky and find a naturalization record from very early on that still includes a lot of good information. Yes. Oh, great, great point. Well, Rich, this has been terrific. Uh, you can find Rich at his website, richroots.net, and we will have links in the show notes to all the different websites we've been talking about to help you find those naturalization records. Rich, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Lisa. Great to be back. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's DNA Deconstructed segment. I am Shannon Combs Bennett, and this month, I want to tell you a little bit about the much-anticipated Jed Match to Genesis transformation. Late last year, many of you may have noticed the announcements from Jed Match about moving to their new platform, Genesis. Well, per an announcement on their website, as of February 4th, here it is. We're a little over a month into this transformation, but what does that mean for you? Especially if you haven't delved into it yet. Well, this segment will break down what you need to know about the new site and how it may impact your DNA research. As a brief reminder, GEDmatch is a free site run by volunteers 
which helps testers compare their autosomal DNA results from different companies. Currently, you can upload tests from Ancestry DNA, Family Tree DNA, 23andMe, MyHeritage, and Living DNA. Users download their raw results from the company or companies they have tested at and then upload these results previously to GEDmatch, but now to Genesis. Note, if you've used GEDmatch in the past, all of your kits have now migrated to the new site. You do not need to create a new account, so it's one less thing to worry about, right? First, why the move? Well, for a very long time, GEDmatch was successfully comparing apples to bananas to oranges. However, comparing testing information from different companies, who change chips often, became increasingly difficult. Genesis helps alleviate these issues. This site is still technically in beta testing, so some features may be missing when you first log in. Give it time. They should reappear over the next few weeks. It does have a sleek new design and is not as clunky as the old site, and I actually find it much easier to navigate and use. Plus, there are a few new tools. Next to each of your kits is a little pencil icon for quick and easy editing, something I really like. There is also a nice key above your kits telling you exactly what is and is not available with each one. Another new feature is the Compact Segment Mapper. It's a very crisp and clean browser, which is a nice change from the clunky version previously seen. For people who want a chromosome browser to see matching segments, this will be a great draw. As with the old site, you can still choose to donate $10, only once or every month, to use the Tier 1 tools. These tools do help with analysis and are well worth the money. If you have not considered using them before, I suggest you try them out, in particular the one-to-many comparison tool. While there is a tool by the same name for free, this one lets you be a little more specific on the results you want to search for and how you sort that information. Needless to say, Genesis is a brand new website which needs to be checked out. To help you learn more about the new site, I encourage you to check out tutorials which I've listed in the show notes. One by Kitty Cooper is titled Time to Move to Genesis. And as in Kitty Cooper's style, she walks you through everything she thinks you need to know. It's a really great breakdown. The other one is called GEDmatch Genesis Tutorial for Beginners. And it was created by Who Are You Made Of? Once again, a really good step-by-step. It walks you through everything. And the last one is Tips for Using GEDmatch. It's an Australian blog, so a bit of a different perspective if you're here in the United States listening. But everybody has really good ideas. And on that note, I'll talk to you next time on the DNA Deconstructed podcast segment. I'm Shannon Combs Bennett. Hope you go out there, research your ancestry, delve into that DNA, and have a lot of fun. Talk to you next time. In today's Best Websites for Genealogy segment, Family Tree University instructor Donna Moody is here to tell us about one of her favorite websites for Irish genealogy. Welcome to the show, Donna. Thanks, Lisa. Now, of course, not everybody can go personally to Ireland to conduct their research. So um, online resources, of course, are really important to everybody. Tell us about one of your favorite websites to kind of help them get prepared for their research. 
Well, I think it's a really exciting time to be doing Irish research because so much of the information that used to be only available in Ireland is now available online. And most of it is free, which makes it even better. But the website that I really want to talk about is one that you're not going to just jump into in order to find the name of your ancestor, but it's one to help you prepare and understand uh, exactly what types of resources are available for you to research. Um, we've talked in the past about the fact that you can't be successful in doing research, Irish research, unless you know the locality where your ancestor came from, and that prior to 1864, there are no complete records. So this website, which is called Irish Ancestors, and it's available at John Grenham. Dot com that's g r e n h a m dot com is a site that you can go to once you know the area in Ireland where your ancestors came from in order to find out what records are available. Well, it's so important because um, I can imagine it'd be really easy to kind of spin your wheels or be looking for something that uh, doesn't exist. Yeah, and and that happens all the time. I frequently get questions or I see postings on various um, Facebook pages or websites saying, you know, I'm looking for a baptismal record for my ancestor in 1750 and I can't find it. Mm. And it's sort of, yeah, you know, you're probably not going to find it because it doesn't exist. And you, if you go to John Grenham's site and put in the uh parish that your ancestor came from, he actually provides you with a list of all of the church information about uh, when the what records are there, when they're available, when they started, and also where they're where they're at. So if they're online, you'll get a, a link to the online source. If they're not online, He'll tell you either that they're in local custody or perhaps they're on microfilm. Um, but it's a, a really important place to go so that you don't spin your wheels for a long time looking for something that doesn't exist. Gosh, that is such a valuable resource. When you get to the website, you know, you see a beautiful landscape of Ireland and you see a search box that says surname. Now, you were, <laughs> you were mentioning to us, you know, we need to know. Uh, the location. I'm thinking, oh, I have Lynch. Well, how many of those are there? So tell us how, how this works. We, we, do we literally just go put our surname in there first? Well, you can do that. And what you'll get when you put your surname in is a map of where all the Lynches are in Ireland. So what you'll see now, this comes from the time frame of Griffith's valuation, which is 1846 to 1864, but you probably have a map with lots of little green dots all oh, yes. over it and thinking, oh my gosh, which one is mine? Now, if you look at the lower left-hand corner of that page, there's a place for you to put in a second surname. So one of the things that you can do is if you know the maiden name of the the mother or the wife that of a couple that was born in Ireland, you can put in the second surname and then it will just isolate the results to only those locations where both names occur. Oh, it certainly did. Now, for example, with my um, daily ancestor, if you look at a map of daily, it's just all over the place. <laughs> and uh, I was just sort of giving up on even finding anything on my dailies. 
but I knew that uh, I had finally found out that they were from County Mayo and that the uh, maiden name of one of John Daly's wives, he was married three times, was Corrine. And when I put that information in, there were only three parishes in County Mayo where those two names overlapped, and they were all adjoining parishes. So it isolated it right down to uh, a locality. So that's one very good way to be able to sort of get an idea as to where in Ireland your ancestors were. Now, if you go back to that front homepage and you look at the top, you'll see that he has a site map, which tells you all of the things that are on uh, the website. But if you click on site map and then look at the right-hand side of the screen, you'll see that he has three maps. One is of Roman Catholic parishes, one is for civil parishes, and one is for registration districts or poor law unions. If you click on the civil parish map, you'll get a map of Ireland, and then you can select the county that your ancestors were from. Once you select the county, you then can select the um, parish. There'll be a whole list. You'll see all the adjoining parishes, and you'll get a list of all of the townlands or place names. And if you click on a place name, it will take you to Griffith's Valuation. And if you click on 1901 or 1911, it'll take you to the censuses. But the most exciting part of that site is the upper right-hand corner, where it tells you all of the types of records that are available for that particular area. So as soon as you find out where your ancestors were in Ireland, you go to this page, and if you, as I said before, if you click on the church records, it will tell you all of the church records that are available. You can click on estate records to find out if there are any estate records or census substitutes. There's all sorts of different um, options there to find out what records that you can look at that exist for that time and place in Ireland. That is an amazing resource. Um, and so who is John Grenham and, and do you know <laughs> how he and why he put all this together? What an amazing gift to everybody else. Sure, because John Grenham is sort of the the Irish genealogist. He ah. wrote the book on Irish genealogy. It's called Tracing Your Irish Ancestors. It's in its fourth edition right now, which was published in 2012. Um, I meet with John. John comes in and uh, when I have my research trips to Ireland, John comes one of the evenings we have dinner with him. Uh, and in October, he told us that the fifth edition of his book is due out in March. So I haven't seen anything on it yet, but I've got my fingers crossed that it'll come out pretty soon. Well, that's fantastic. So a lot of um, homework that we can do before ahead of time so that we really know what we're looking for. And um, I really encourage all of you listening, you know, maybe go back and do the rewind button and play it again and click along with Donna as she described how you can move through the site because it really is impressive. Uh, the website is John Grenham, G-R-E-N-H-A-M.com. And uh, Donna, thank you so much again for sharing your wonderful Irish genealogy resources. I know you have a new course coming up with Family Tree University. Tell us just a little bit about that. Yeah, it's uh, probably going to be out in March, and it will cover sort of the basics of 
for most people, how do you find that location in Ireland? Um, uh, one of the lectures is on six sources that you should always look for for when you're doing Irish research. And uh, it goes into, besides the basics of church records and civil records, I talk a little bit about, you know, how you can use maps and land and tax records in terms of, of finding your ancestors. And I also talk about dog licenses, a really yeah. unique source that um, can be very helpful in Ireland. Fascinating. Oh, well, there's, there's always a lot to learn about Irish research. And, and if you're listening to this, and it's past the time when this course was launched, don't worry, head to the show notes page, there'll be a link or go to Family Tree University and do a search on Dada Moody, which is M-O-U-G-H-T-Y, or Irish genealogy, and I'm sure her courses will pop up. Um, many of these courses operate like for a week-long live session where you can interact with Donna and you can watch the videos or on a self-study basis. So there's lots of different options for you. Donna, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing one of your favorite sites. Thanks, Lisa. Appreciate it. In today's Stories from the Stack segment, we're going to virtually roam the aisles of the Houston, Texas Public Library's Clayton Library Center for Genealogical Research. Now, Susan Kaufman is the senior manager there, and she has more than 30 years of experience as a genealogy librarian. She's a genealogy conference speaker, and she currently serves as the Texas State Genealogical Society's Director of Education. Welcome to the show, Sue. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about today's podcast. Me too. And, you know, uh, we were just both out at Roots Tech, which is, of course, why my voice is just about completely gone. <laughs> you sound pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was a great week. I think the conferences are just a great way to network and learn. So, yeah, it was a exactly. nice week out in Salt Lake. Well, today we are uh, focusing in this episode on online resources. Sometimes we can't get out and get to places in person, but certainly there's lots of wonderful rich resources online, and the Clayton Library has many of those. I'd love to have you take us to the homepage, and let's just kind of virtually walk through and help them navigate. It's, it's a large, rich website, so we want to funnel them directly to the kinds of things they would be interested in using. Uh, tell us where we begin. Okay, well, great. So the first thing that you're going to want to do, especially for online resources, is get a library card, okay? Mm -hmm. So first what you want to do is you want to engage a library website, which is at houstonlibrary.org. The homepage will come up, and then up in the left-hand side, it will say get a MyLink card. That's what we call our library card. When you click on that, it will take you to a page where you can register for your library card. When you get to that page, you will click on where it says register here. Now, anyone in Texas can get a free Houston Public Library card. If you live outside of Texas, there is a fee for $40 a year. But that's the key to get you into those online sources that we're going to talk about. And it's really worthwhile because, I mean, I'm lucky. I live in Texas, but uh, we have a, really an international audience, and you have international collections. So this is something for everybody. Correct. That's right. We do in-house. We have an international collection. And of course, online, you can wander the world. Yes, exactly. Online sources. So at HoustonLibrary.org, um, we mm -hmm. see a menu with uh, find it, learn and explore, research. Are we clicking research? 
Once we have our card, what you're going to want to do is, is back at the homepage at houstonlibrary.org or at any page you're actually at. There's a red bar across the top, and you will click on locations and hours. Ah. So, yeah, so when you go to locations and hours, you will see we are one of 46 locations, and that could be kind of important when we talk about some things in, in the future of the podcast, but we are going to scroll down and you will find Clayton Library Center for Genealogical Research. You will click on that. You will see our hours. You'll see our phone number. You're more than welcome to call us anytime and ask us questions. You click on the Clayton Library Center for Genealogical Research. At that point, because of course, you know, you, we like to make a lot of clicks, you, you go to what is our neighborhood, our neighborhood library landing page, which of course, where you can scroll down and see our events. We have plenty of in-house events. We do a library orientation if you're in the area um, on the third Saturday of each month. But to get to the online sources, you're going to scroll back up to the top and there is a red bar that says Clayton Library Collections and Services. You'll click on that. Once you click on that, you go to our specific library page where, once again, we have a scrolling picture of our library and our hours. And then you will scroll down just a little underneath, and you'll see boxes there. We call them cards. And if you click on the card that says Collections, that will get you into the stuff. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. So, you scroll down a little more. Once you get to that page, you'll see a lovely picture of our stacks, and you'll see some hot links there that start with USA and state materials, and they explain the materials that we do have here at the library. But then at the very bottom, there is a link there for online resources. Yay! We're finally there. There's an explanation of them, and then there are some hot links there to some of our online resources. Wonderful. And everybody listening, you know, we'll have this, uh, these steps lined out for you in the show notes for this episode. So don't worry, you can navigate your way back here again. (laughs) And I see lots of different things. I see things that seem to be specific to Clayton. And I also see some things that look like they might be in the greater Houston Public Library type system. Tell us a little bit more about the online resources. Okay, so the online resources, when you click onto where, when you see, you'll see HPL Genealogy Research page, that of course will open up a database page that is, that is specific to genealogy, where you'll see some newspaper in, uh, databases, you'll see of course some library in-house use only, and they are marked, mm-hmm. so um, obviously our subscription to Ancestry is in-house only and library only, but you'll be able to tell which ones, but in addition to that, there there are some other newspaper databases. We have some African-American databases, uh, Civil War databases. We also have our microprint collection and then um, some other things. Uh, you know, we also have MyHeritage, which is available remotely with your library card. So there are some other materials there. One of the other things that you will also find is a link to the HPL, the Houston Public Library newspapers. Uh, a lot of we we have we the library subscribes to over 200 databases and so not everything resides inside the genealogy research database list. When you click on the newspapers, you'll see that there are some other newspapers there that uh, including the Atlanta Daily World Historical Archive that is that are not recreated at the genealogy research page. Those are at the newspaper database page. 
you want to investigate things outside genealogy because remember we're trying to add to those names and dates and get stories in addition to who knows what we're going to find in newspapers. So investigating those other links outside of just the Clayton research genealogy research page I think is very beneficial. Absolutely. Now I see that you have um, your microprint database. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Well, microfilm. For those that have never engaged microfilm, I suggest Dramamine because, of course, (laughs) you can get motion sick. It's just like the old movie projectors. Remember that although there is plenty of wonderful, wonderful material online, not everything is there. So we have microfilm that is specific, and this is one of our unique collections, some of the state material that you'll find, historical material, land records, commissioner court records. Um, We have records of the antebellum slave plantations. Uh, We have other special collections that are only on microfilm that have not been digitized. So that's when we invite you to come to the library. When you click on that, you can click by state, you can click by country, you can click by type, and it will tell you a list of what we have that is specific to your research. So this is a great place to do your preparation for a visit or maybe prepare to hire somebody who's on site to then go pull some things for you. If you're not Correct. able to go yourself, yes. Exactly, exactly. I mean, in, in anywhere you're going, you should investigate a library website to see yeah. what's there, number one, because especially if you're taking a trip, you're going to want something that's unique. Why are you going there? Right. What is unique there? And that would be our microprint. Again, if someone is interested in hiring somebody uh, to come and search some of our locations, please give us a call because we do have a professional researchers list that we can send you. Oh, terrific. So, yes. So, um, and then, of course, coming here, you would want to, you know, of course, the unique. And then, of course, you know, engaging with somebody, you know, I mean, talking to somebody, listening to podcasts like this to continue to see if somebody can really help you with your specific source and your specific research. That's why there are nine of us here who will help you through your personal pursuit. Excellent. Now, of course, there is a card catalog. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've kind of zeroed right into some great pages that are giving us lists and links and that type of thing. But how about the overall catalog? How might they best take advantage of that? Well, again, from any page, mm-hmm. uh, when you're at our, our library page up at the top, it says search our catalog. We are one of 46 locations. Remember, you are doing a keyword search. So if you put Revolutionary War as a keyword search in that catalog, material from all of our 46 locations will appear. However, when you, if you do the search, on the left-hand side of the results screen, there is a way to limit material down to Clayton. So you could search Ohio. You could search Cuyahoga County. You could search family names. We have over 15,000 family histories specific to family name. So that would be a way to see what is available here at the library. Now, just you were talking about that filter on the left hand side, which Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. terrific. What a help to be able to zero in in so many different ways. I see that one of the tabs at the very top from the search results is e-resources and articles. So is this going to automatically narrow down to things that are um, digital? It will take you to material that is like that. Um, Let me do a quick search and see. So when you go to e-resources and articles, when you click on that, it is sort of material that is suggested. 
Okay. Um, if we click on if and and so there are suggested books. It does give us a research starter when and that will give us a little history up at the top. I, I'm looking through Revolutionary War specifically. Mm-hmm. It gives us a little information about an abstract and it is giving us a book and some information about that. Um, it gives us an article that we can link to. You can um, see what kind of and where the article is held. There's an abstract. And then link on those and then learn some more history about that. And of course, when we click, um, I have an item here, find full text. When we click that, that's where you need to enter that digital library mm-hmm. card that you got, right? Yes, exactly. And okay. so that's why really the first place to go is get that library card because you won't be able to get into any of the databases or you won't be able to follow through. Excellent. Well, it's, it's a terrific website. You said it's a pretty new website, right? Yeah, our Clayton, the Clayton Library website is something we have moved over to. So we are adding stuff. One of the things we're going to be adding are our handouts from our presentations that we do on property here. So look forward to that. And then we also are trying to create sort of a directory. I, uh, maybe, I, I, you know, Cindy's List has been such a wonderful thing for 23 years. We would like to maybe sort of have um, some library-suggested uh, websites for specific topics. But, you know, as with websites, they're a work in progress. So we do hope that everybody comes back and looks in, you know, periodically to see what's going on. But the most important thing is get a library card, and that gets you access to all those wonderful online databases. Excellent. Well, we've been talking to Sue Kaufman from the Houston, Texas Public Library's Clayton Library Center for Genealogical Research. You'll find them at HoustonLibrary.org. Always great to talk to you, Sue. Thank you so much for taking us on a tour of your wonderful website. Lisa, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. This just in. It's easier than ever to create a book about your family history. And here to prove it to you is Family Tree Magazine contributor and Family Tree University instructor, Sunny Morton. Hi, Sunny. Hi, Lisa. So your Family Tree University workshop is called Make a Book in Three Days. Now that sounds very ambitious, but it's exciting to think that that's possible. And I know that you literally help students do just that. So first, what are some of the most common obstacles that people are facing in creating a book, even taking this project on? Well, I think one of the very first problems, I I think there are two that are really critical that this workshop really does make it possible to do a book in three days if you're willing to do these two things. And the first is to finally decide what story you want to tell. Pick one story. Pick (laughs) one great story that you can tell in a 20-page photo book. And I'd give you lots of tips in the class on how to scope that so that you're not taking on too much and so that you're not struggling to fill the pages of your book. So I think that's the first critical. If you're willing to make that decision, then you're ready for this class. And the second thing that I think is so important for everybody, the feedback that I got from the class is it's so overwhelming to try to organize everything that's in your head and everything that's in your tree and in your computer files, your digital photos, your newspaper clippings. How do you organize all that into a coherent page turning story? And that's the, that's the step-by-step each day we offer different tasks and, okay, now it's time to move ahead and do this part of it to help you organize and lay out that story that you want to tell. 
Yeah, those are the two pain points that I know <laughs> I have heard. And you know, you, you kind of slipped in there. This is basically a 20 page book. And I love that. Because right there and then you've addressed the need of the reader, not necessarily the need of the researcher. I mean, the researcher wants every last detail. But the reader, the non genealogists in our families, they're not looking for that, are they? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's why the emphasis is here, not on that 300 page compiled genealogy with all your charts and tables and all those kinds of things. But this is one simple photo book project, meaning heavy on it's a picture book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want to read a picture book about their own family history? And we can all come up with 20 pages worth of images to help tell your family stories. So tell us, how does the workshop work? It's it's three days, so it's pretty intensive, I imagine, but it's it's online. Tell us how this is structured. Sure. So once you sign up for the class, you'll get the links that you need or the logins to log into your online class. And then it's an interactive experience where each day you're given some readings and you can you can work ahead. And I have plenty of people who do the whole thing in <laughs> one big long binge day. Um, say they're just free on a Saturday. They just do it all on Saturday or do it all on Saturday and Sunday. So but we offer three day long modules that let you say, okay, for today, consider the things. Okay, today we're going to figure out how to define the story you want to tell, how to to narrow down or to beef up one particular story to tell that that you'll be able to tell in in a day. And then you'll start to make some image selections. And we give you some technical help on what makes a good quality image for a photo book. How do I convert my digital images to the right format for the site I want to use? What are some different websites I can use? How much is this going to cost me? And so we walk you through this process chunked into three days worth. We give you layout ideas and um, different ways that you can show it, whether, well, how do I know whether I want, you know, a 10 by 10 size book or do I want one that that's a landscape orientation where it lays out horizontally? How do you even choose and what will the pictures look like if you do it? And what will the layout look like if, if you do it in different sizes and styles of books? So we really just hold your hand through the whole weekend, considering all the questions that are going to come up for you so that by the end of this three-day course, you'll have everything you need and you'll probably be done. I know that you use some of the online services that you can kind of print on demand books. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can go to those websites, but all the stuff you're talking about, the the organizing your materials, outlining the story, figuring out what goes in and what doesn't go in, all of that is so intangible. And they don't really talk about that on the book building site. So you're really bringing the genealogy perspective to this process of creating a book. And I know I've made a couple of these and my family, the ones who just roll their eyes at the big binders and the big files, they love these books. And do you find the same thing that they people will actually sit down and read them? They actually do. And that's not, it's not dependent on the age either. Kids will sit and read them. Grownups will sit and read them. College students, older adults, anybody will sit and look at a picture book for a little while, especially if the people kind of look like them or (laughs) the stories have have some relevance to their lives, which they do with the family history. And, you know, we ran this class once last fall and it was an incredibly popular class. It was really full. And what surprised me was really the hands-on help that people wanted when it came to time to start creating the book on the website. 
Um, so I, I created a video tutorial to have, I think it was for Shutterfly that walked you through the process of here's the different places, the different tools that you'll use in Shutterfly to create these different effects and layouts. And I was a little surprised at the number of people who said, oh my goodness, that was so helpful. I couldn't have done that without it because I use those kinds of things and um, in my job routinely, uh, some of these visual tools. And so I didn't realize that this is something people really want help with. So I'm really glad that that um, that particular video made it in there. Absolutely. You're taking the guesswork out of it. Well, yeah. So what, what Sunny is talking about is this three-day workshop. It's called Make a Book in Three Days. It's through Family Tree University. And of course, in the show notes for this episode, I will have a link that will take you directly to the next time that this class is being offered. Now we're recording in February of 2019. It's coming this spring. So it's a wonderful project to think about. You've got Mother's Day. You've got Father's Day. You've got weddings coming in June. Lots of great reasons to to finally make a family history book. Well, thank you so much, Sunny. It sounds exciting. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this March 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I hope you're as excited as I am to try out many of the online resources that we talked about today. I'm going to have links on the show notes webpage to everything that we talked about. You can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, which of course is also available through the Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts apps. And we have our own app, the Genealogy Gems app in your favorite app store. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. Mm -hmm.